the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Well, greetings, everyone. We're going to be discussing the um, what I call the rules of the game or perhaps the rules of engagement uh, when it comes to God's kingdom uh, being established and reestablished in the earthly realm. And one of the things that uh, people find intriguing is the concept of authority. And so for this show this morning, I decided that let's put a question to that. Uh, With the beginning of God, creation plan is blueprint, if you will, in Genesis 1 and 2, um, there was the concept of giving authority, which the legal definition of authority is simply a legal permission to do something, legal permission to carry something out, legal uh, permission to implement something. And so when we're asking the question, well, who received the authority in God's blueprint plan when he first started his creation process in Genesis 1 and 2. So to look at that, we need to go to uh, the 26th and 27th verse in Genesis, and let's go ahead and open up your scripture and let's take a look at it, and we will read it together. I'm going to do a reading from the New King James, starting at uh, Genesis 1:26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. And then it basically names all of the animals, etc. We don't have to go into all of that, but the dominion or the authority was given to man because he was made in God's image and in his likeness. And so going down to verse 27, it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Go on down to the next verse, 28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over, and then it names all of the animals in the ocean and in the air, etc., And then lastly, skipping on down to verse 31, as God looks things over, he makes and utters an opinion. He says, God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. Not just good, very good. So let's stop right there and examine what happened when man came into God's image and his likeness. So... If you can picture likeness being more of a vertical process, um, kind of a download, if you will, from God transferring the essence of who he is in his likeness from him into his created mankind, um, that's the vertical experience, you will, if you will, um, of receiving his likeness, but for what purpose? What was the point? Well, it's in order that we, as members of mankind, can express 
God's essence by imaging him, by giving out his image. And that's more of a horizontal process. That's like um, almost like somebody's setting off a glow or uh, some sort of essence that's being given off and fragrance. And so everywhere that man is supposed to go, according to God's will, uh, he is to possess his likeness, God's likeness, and take it with him so that he can become horizontally the image and the kingdom changer, if you will, everywhere he travels. So let's see here. Let's go also now bring in the concept of what's man supposed to do um, with this thing called earth um, from which he was actually made. So let's take a look at Genesis 2.15. Well, we can actually, before we get to 2.15, let's go to Genesis 2.7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Okay. Uh, we see in verse 8 that he plants the garden. And then skip over to verse 15 in Genesis 2.15. It says, Then the Lord took man and put him in the garden of Eden, to, two words here, to tend it and to keep it. That's in the New King James. If you take a look at the complete uh, Jewish, Messianic Jewish study Bible, it says to cultivate it and to care for it. So that was man's job. And it's interesting um, that there's something going on here between God and man as this um, beginning of what man's function is, what man's purpose is. Take a look at uh, verse 19 in Genesis chapter 2. We see that the Lord, out of the ground, he formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air. Now listen to this. This is important. And brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Now, this is an interesting exchange between creator God and his newly created uh, creature called man, where he starts to bring and work together, but bring the animals that he's creating over to Adam and say, hey, Adam, what do you think we ought to call this particular one? Or what, what, are, we, what, are, you, what are you going to call this one or that one? And notice that's an expression of what we studied earlier about authority. Authority is legal permission to represent, represent for example, in the law of agency, if you're an agent of a principal, um, you're given legal permission as an agent to represent the principal as the principal extends himself out to interchange with the world. And this is what is interesting here. The authority that Father God has given Adam is really expressed here in uh, chapter two, nineteen of Genesis, where he says, "Whatever you want to call," he's based. Now I'm paraphrasing, but he's saying, "Whatever you want to call these creatures that I am creating out of the ground, Adam, that's good enough for me." I don't think there's any record in the Scripture where there's a disagreement or where. Uh, the father's looking down his nose at Adam saying, boy, I'm not sure, why would you want to call um, an anteater an aardvark or vice versa? There's, there's none of that uh, disagreement going on. He's basically displaying trust um, to this newly created creature called man where he says, I trust you implicitly to represent me both my likeness and my image as you tend and keep and cultivate and care for this earth. So we see an example of God and man actually working together. So that's kind of the framework. Um, unfortunately, in Genesis 3, 
um, all of this earthly creation and God's authority that he established by putting man in charge of this earthly creation all blows up with what happens in Genesis chapter 3. And, of course, we know that as that's pretty much the first appearance of a spiritual creature uh, called Satan, which uh, means the adversary. And he's basically a fallen spirit. He is not a human. He is not of mankind. And uh, he wasn't placed in charge of the earth to care and to take care of it, to tend it, to keep it, to cultivate it. In fact, angelic creatures were not put in charge of tending or caring for the material creation. That was the purpose of the creation of man. But there's an interest here on the part of, of uh, the adversary who is going to make an appearance, and he's very, very interested in engaging mankind. In the first example we have is Eve, and there was a conversation to be engaged in and of course he is says very much <laughs> that he's sly and he's wily and he's deceptive and so when he first approaches Eve it's going to be more just of some questions that seem to be innocent and there's not going to be any sort of attack against God's uh, character or God's nature yet he just wants to engage in some seemingly innocent questions but the first lie, first deception that this enemy um, engages in is that he wants to ask or actually make a statement um, to the woman that the warning, the earlier warning that she received that there was certain, a certain tree that she was not supposed to touch or to look at from fruit on that tree, and um, if she did, she would die. And, of course, he's now saying out loud and out in the open, first lie, first deception, first fraudulent statement, you shall not die. Well, that was a hook to create in Eve's mind as to God's nature, God's character. And Eve is supposed to be a representative with the legal authority she's been earlier given Adam was also given the same authority to represent God. And unfortunately, she's being taken advantage of, and she is not acting as an agent in this particular situation. And so as we read on in Genesis chapter 3, um, the lie is further spread in verse 5 where it says, God knows that in the day you eat of the uh, fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what's interesting is Satan is making a statement to her to say, you will be like God. Well, what we've earlier studied this morning is in the earlier chapters, in chapter 1 and 2, we see that the likeness of God was already given to Adam, and the likeness of God was already given to Eve. So the statement that you will be like God from the future tense, Eve already had it. She already had the likeness of God. So in essence, the enemy was attempting to tempt her by uh, casting aspersions on the trustworthiness of God, on his um, nature, his character. And in essence, he was trying to make her think that God didn't want her to have something that, in essence, she already had. She already had received it. And so let's explore what would motivate Satan in trying to exercise this deceit what was he really looking for um, in engaging Eve? 
And so in order to understand that, we need to go over to something that happened in the heavenlies. Let's take a look at uh, Isaiah chapter 14. And I'm going to again read from the New King James here. And starting at verse 12, we discovered that something happened in heaven that we could call a rebellion, we could call it a uh, revolution. And notice how it starts off in verse 12 of Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Again, referring to Satan. Again, referring to his other name as the adversary. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. Verse 13, for you have said in your heart, these are the, what they call the five I wills. The first one is, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farther sides of the north. And I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And here, notice this, I will be like the Most High. And let's just stop there for a moment. Let's back up to verse 13. One of the I wills where he says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of heaven. I have a question to ask. Where in Scripture ever, once, Old Testament or New Testament, do you see an angel being given the authority? This is what we're discussing today is who gets the authority in the beginning as God created it. Do you ever see a verse that grants authority to the angelic kingdom, be it the loyal angels or to be or the rebellious angels? And as you take a look at that question, I think you're going to find that the answer is no. The thrones, especially over the earth, um, of how to care for it and take care of it and tend to it and cultivate it, is not given to angelic beings, especially fallen angelic beings. And then if you go down to uh, verse 14, just like take another look at this other dimension of what's motivating Satan to try to come in and get something from Adam and Eve that he doesn't have. He says, I will be like the Most High. Well, in order to do that, Satan has to receive authority, especially if he wants to rule and reign over the material kingdom. Now, you might say, well, where would, what, where, in what other verses do we see Satan trying to say he was interested in ruling over the material kingdom? Well, if you look at the three temptations of Christ, the second temptation, there's an uh, interesting discussion as Satan takes Jesus up to the top of the mountain, and he says, if you fall down and uh, again, paraphrasing here, if you f- fall down and worship me, he says, basically, I have the authority to give all this to you. And he, he doesn't show him heaven. That wasn't the goal. He doesn't show him um, anything other than what both Jesus and Satan understood to be the target, the objective, the goal, which was the nations of the earth and the earth itself. And it's really interesting I think a lot of times that when we are discussing kingdom of God, etc., we really don't understand the rules of the unseen world. We don't understand the rules of the game, so to speak. We don't understand the rules of engagement. And I think that the Lord is bringing us to a greater understanding to appreciate that there are rules in effect that apply to all of God's creation. And we need to get much more uh, attuned to what the dynamics are on these rules. So, so go back to uh, John. I'm sorry, Isaiah fourteen sixteen. Uh, actually, fifteen. He says, "Yet you will be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit, and those who will see you will gaze at you and consider you." saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open 
the house of the prisoners. So take another look at, let's jump over to Ezekiel 28, I believe. Yes, verse 14, Ezekiel 28, verse 14. This further explains um, the fact that the rebellion against God did not begin on earth. It already had begun earlier. And this gives you more background, who was behind the rebellion, and what were they interested in? What were they motivated to obtain? And it says, you were the anointed cherub who covers. And some scholars think that that's a covering of when you look at the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, the two golden angels that are there, uh, where the mercy seat is where the presence of God, the Shekinah glory shows up. Um, that's how close Satan was to the to the throne, because it says here, you were the anointed cherub who covers, well, those wings cover uh, that mercy seat uh, when you study the ark and its construction. It goes on to say in verse 14, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Again, talking to, about Satan. Until iniquity was found in you. Verse 16 of Ezekiel 28. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I lay you before kings that they may gaze at you. So this rebellion that um, began against God and his creation and his order of things did not begin on earth. It did not begin in Genesis 1 and 2 that we just read and Genesis 3. Um, but the mechanics of Satan's goal to, when we look at Isaiah uh, 14, one of the five I wills was he wanted to be like the Most High. Well, again, what's the name of this teaching? The name of this teaching is who received the authority at the beginning of the creation. And again, authority is critical as learning the rules of the unseen world as to how they impact the material creation. Satan desired to be like God, but he needed to get the authority to bring his power to earth after he was cast out of heaven when his rebellion failed. And we can see that in the two chapters that we just studied in Isaiah 14. Go back and look at it in Ezekiel 28. So, the challenge for Satan is how does he get something that God is never going to grant to him? He has to get authority from somebody who legally did receive God's authority to be the image and the likeness of God. Who might that be? Well, as we go back to where we started this study, Genesis 1, 27 and 28, going into Genesis 2, we can see that that authority to rule and reign over the earth was not given to the angelic creation. And so what we have to verify at this point is what would motivate Satan, since he knows God's not going to give him the authority that mankind received, he has to figure out another way how to get that authority. So he's going to approach the creature's who did receive that authority. Authority, again, being legal permission to represent the principle. And in this case, in his image and in his likeness. So 
in the next um, half hour, we're going to deal with the motivation and how he was able to obtain this authority by, in essence, tricking, deceiving, through fraud and deceit, that mankind might voluntarily hand this authority over to this creator of a spiritual rebellion, the fallen angel who wants to come to earth and needs authority in order to exercise his fallen angel residual power. So we'll catch you on the other side, and God bless you. Well, welcome back. Um, We're going to pick up where we left off on the last segment about what would motivate Satan to get or obtain the authority or legal permission to operate in God's material kingdom. And in essence, uh, the last session we studied Ezekiel uh, 28 and Isaiah 14 to understand what was motivating Satan. After he fell, um, was cast down to earth, uh, he still had some residual uh, power. He did have some power, but in order to have uh, effective power in the unseen world bringing, being brought to the material world, you need legal authority or legal permission first in order to exercise that power. Well, it's obvious after what we read in Ezekiel 28 that um, Satan could not get or would not reasonably expect to ever get after the rebellion against God in the second heavens. He's never going to be granted the legal permission to, to do anything in the material realm from God. God's not going to give it to him. But if he can receive the legal authority to exercise his power in the material realm from somebody or, or someone who did receive legal permission directly from God, that would satisfy his ability to unite and accelerate and to ignite the power that he wanted to release on earth. There was resentment, obviously, on the part of the fallen angelic kingdom when it came to why would the creator father give to basically, to use a word, dust balls. (laughs) We see Father God taking a handful of dust and breathing into it and in essence saying, I'm going to give these creative creatures from dust I am going to give them the power and the authority to rule and reign on and in this earth. And because of what we saw in Ezekiel 28, which describes that Satan was a high anointed cherub who who was covering, and in all likelihood that meant covering something, he was very near to God because the covering cherubs were the ones who, you see the two angels covering the, the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And after his fall, he had to regroup, and he had to somehow try to reestablish himself on a place called Earth, but as an angel he cannot operate with only residual power by itself. He has to have the legal authority, legal permission. So... As we studied in the last half hour, we saw that it was mankind through Adam and Eve who received the authority to receive the likeness of God and reflect his image. And so the plan became because of jealousy, because of envy of the fallen kingdom, of the fallen angel, he said, I am going to try to go around God's plan, and I will get this authority through stealth, through deceit, through fraud, and I will have 
the recipients, the original recipients of being able to legally rule and reign over the creation, I'll have them give it over to me voluntarily of their own volition. That was, that was the task. And that's what Genesis 3 is all about with that conversation uh, between the serpent and Eve, and then, unfortunately, Adam was also to fall as well. Now, when we say fall, what happened was Eve started to allow her imagination as she looked on the tree and looked on the fruit, and the Scripture says she found it pleasant to her eyes. And there's something very powerful um, in how the human mind operates, how the human mind works. But when we start to imagine things, don't forget, God's making man creative creatures. Um, you say, well, where's that? Well, man is a creative creature just in the realm of ideas. Ideas are creative. Ideas are original. Um, for And then you see how God, the Father, in chapter 2, what we studied earlier of Genesis, as the Father brings all of the animals that he is making out of the ground and he asks Adam he says he says I'm giving you the authority to name all these creatures so those creative names originated with Adam and God never disagreed with it they were working together they had a joint project a joint venture if you will and so man is in many ways reflective of both the likeness of God and his image, and God is a creative creature. Well, and so that's something that the fallen angelic world is not. They are not creative. And so it's important for Satan to get and allow um, Eve's imagination as she focuses on the fruit, and focuses on the tree. Now, the two commands originally to Eve was, were do not touch and do not eat of it, okay? So there are two separate commands there. But what's really interesting is Eve did not appreciate the fact that she had already re- earlier received God's likeness, and she was to image um, that likeness. And so she allowed her imagination to be so focused on the suggestion, the lie, the fraud that the enemy had implanted into her mind through that conversation of uh, when he asked her, did God really say? Just planting doubt. And as she began to focus on what her mind was imagining as she looked and perceived those two things that were uh, prohibited to her, all of a sudden, the power of her imagination is now taking hold. And her free will is going to be exercised, and she's going to make a decision. And unfortunately, that decision is going to wreak havoc with everything that God has earlier created. Okay, so I want now to jump over to learning again what's the rules of the game as to who received authority to rule and reign the earth. Let's, let's jump on over to the New Testament. Let's go over to Luke uh, chapter 10. It's talking about Jesus Son of God, Son of Man, who comes and basically is announcing the arrival of a reestablishment of God's government, of God's kingdom, of God's order. Kingdom, by the way, just means the domain of the king. It's not necessarily a place when we talk about kingdom of God. It can be a place, but not necessarily a place. It, it kingdom, if it's God's domain, it has its own set of 
order, its own set of rules, its own set of operating systems, okay? And when John the Baptist starts to uh, preach that mankind is to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, basically announcing that there's a new sheriff in town because the Son of God, as not just the Son of God, but the Son of Man, is coming back, has come back, to, in essence, reestablish that which the enemy stole away, to, in essence, bring the kingdom and reestablish the order and the functioning of the earthly kingdom before the fall. And so I want you to jump over to Luke chapter 10, and this is when, I'll just read the first um, verse there. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So this is authority being granted by Yeshua. That's his Jewish name, which means uh, salvation. He saves. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who's fulfilling the law and the prophets of returning to the earth and reestablishing the order and kingdom of God. He's sending these people out, these 70 disciples. And he says in verse 3 of, of Luke 10, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs amongst wolves. And he tells them about what are they to carry. You know, He says, Carry neither money, bag, knapsack, nor sandals. Greet no one along the road. And then he says, But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. Um, that's actually a command. Um, when you say shalom in Hebrew, you're actually, when you're going into a house, you're actually commanding with your authority, your spiritual authority to operate in the material realm. When you enter into a house and you declare shalom or peace to this house, that is a command. And, um, so and, it, and then it goes on to say, if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And so um, I want you to skip over now to something that's very important because there are several rules and, and uh, levels of authority that Jesus is giving them. But I want you to focus on verse 17 of Luke chapter 10, what, what happened, what reports when the 70 returned back to Jesus, they returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. You remember what we talked about in the first segment about Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. There was a earlier rebellion. It, that rebellion did not begin on earth. It began in the heavenlies. And Take a look at this verse again. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 19. And behold, I give you, now notice what he says here in the syntax of the words. I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So let's go back up and take a look at the connection, the relationship between authority, which is legal permission, and the word power, which is the capacity the ability to do something, to accomplish something, to carry out something. The two have to be present in the spiritual warfare context of kingdom versus kingdom. And let's take a look at verse 17 again. Notice that Jesus 
said to them, oh, no, I'm sorry, the, they said to Jesus, Lord, they were shocked, they were surprised. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, jump on down to verse 19. When Jesus tells them that I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you, in essence, the communication from Jesus to these 70 apostles is that the authority, the legal permission, that he is the Son of God who represents the Father, trumps or overcomes the residual power of the spiritual enemy. It's a very important principle to learn in what we are calling the spiritual rules of the game. It's not a game. It's a very deadly, serious matter with great opportunities and blessings, and the contrary would be great loss and harm. So in this situation, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus reestablishing the original authority that we saw earlier in Genesis 1 and 2 being given from the Father over to his earthly creation, his, his, this human creation, both Adam and Eve. And if this authority is being, the authority is being reestablished, notice it is the Son of God who is authorizing them to go and bring the kingdom to the material realm once again. And so this principle is extremely important to understand, and it's extremely important to be able to apply. We live in a world that we can see more and more that the enemy is coming out of the closet. He is manifesting in many ways on earth. And we have to understand the relationship of authority and power. I am going to propose to you that there is, as you look at, almost take a piece of paper and write down the word authority on the left, and then leave a space, a large space, and on the right hand of that piece of paper, write down the word power. There's a connection on how to see a release of divine power, of God's power, between this authority that we are given as sons and daughters of the Most High God from the Father. And we need to understand how the kingdom operates, how it works, how it functions. Let me take you to uh, an example of how it works. Let's go to Acts chapter 1, looking verses uh, 4 through 8. Well, again, we'll read it in the New King James Version. And in Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 4, and being assembled together with them, he, referring to Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. Verse 5, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not too many days from now. And uh, verse 6, and therefore when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's always an issue of God's kingdom being brought back to earth. The story of the Bible is not about the soon escaping church. The story of the Bible is about the soon coming kingdom, God's government, God's order. Verse 7, and he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Verse 8, now listen, watch for the word power. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. All right. 
as you look on your piece of paper to the left and you see the word authority and you look to the far right and you see the word power, I think the scripture there um, pretty much makes it very clear that there is something that is a bridge, a connector, if you will, between the word authority, which is legal permission, and the word power, which is the ability to carry it out. And what we see here in these four verses in the first chapter of Acts, in verse 4, Jesus commands um, his apostles to not depart from Jerusalem. Okay, That was the first command. Don't leave. Stay. And then there's a second command. And he says, but he would, they were to wait for the promise of the Father, which he explained in verse 5, was the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Not too many days from then. And in verse 8, he connects the dots and says, look, if you obey... As you obey God, the authority that has been given to you, the legal permission, will manifest and turn into divine power as you cross this bridge between the word authority on the left and the word of power on the right. As you cross this bridge, the bridge has a name. It's actually called obeying God. It's called thy will be done in the Lord's Prayer. It's called carrying out the will and the desire of the Father. And so what allowed the Holy Spirit release of power is the fact that the commands that were issued by Jesus to his apostles were followed to the letter. They were obeyed to the letter. Now, why is this so important? The the essence of Satan's fallen kingdom is just the opposite. It manifests itself in disobedience. It manifests itself in rebellion against God's will, against God's kingdom, against God's order, against God's desires. And here, the essence of God's authority being reestablished on the earth, being given again, notice not to angels, but rather to apostles and to disciples, humans, sons and okay, of the Most High God, human creations with the likeness of God that we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, and now imaging God in a horizontal fashion out to the world as they obey. It is so critical that we learn these spiritual rules of the game. Obedience is everything when we talk about the transition from legal permission of authority over to the manifestation and the exercise of manifested power. So, I want to ask you a question here. There's a group that when you preach this in church makes everybody very uncomfortable and very nervous. And I call it the Matthew 721 crowd. And let me just, I'm going to to only be able to leave you with a question, but we'll come back next week with the answer. But, in the Matthew 7:21 crowd, this is the group that said to Jesus, and Jesus actually is saying, is <laughs> teaching in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. That's what we talked earlier. That's the obedience part. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name. Now, those, those seem to be heavy hitters. These, these are not people who are not believers. This is a message sent to the church, in fact, the leaders of the church. And look at verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you who practice, and here's the key word, lawlessness. Verse 24, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who built his house on the rock. So there's a shocked group of people here that really expected to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But in essence, they were being told by the returning Messiah to say, I didn't even know you. And Jesus says, look, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It says in 1 John, uh, the wonderful letter to read, how do we know that we, that we know God? It's 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4. 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4. And this is, I'm summarizing, I'm paraphrasing, but it says, and this is how we know that we know God if we obey his commandments, if we do his will. So where did the power come from in Matthew seven twenty one? Where did that power come from if, they, if God didn't even know them? That question we will answer next week, and we'll pick it up there. Um, and I think you'll find it an interesting study. God bless you. Till next time, may the Lord re- richly bless you with his presence and his power as you exercise his authority by obeying his word. In Jesus' name. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal his Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.